Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we take a deep dive into the week's health tech news and views so you don't have to. This week, I am joined by Jessica Smith from the SOMEX team, and really excited for this one, Joe Talora from Health Service Journal, who, after weeks of us asking, has uh, kindly agreed to join us to talk about what I would say is an absence of a story rather than a story in itself, but I think uh, we'll get more into that. Um, so just for everyone's benefit, Joe's a, uh, a correspondent at the Health Service Journal, started in 2023 and writes about the use of technology in the NHS, as well as local issues in the South and Southwest. Jessica, Joe, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm also good, thank you. I'm delighted because it's my first full week back in the UK after a few months of travelling, being in Malta last week uh, for the MedTech World Conference which was awesome, by the way, very, very good, would definitely recommend meeting of the minds. And the 27 degree heat definitely helped with that. So would thoroughly recommend. But yeah, I'm very much glad to be home in my own bed and ready to focus on staying here, really. And FDP, of course, I'm I'm thoroughly excited for this conversation, because I feel like there are lots of us with lots of questions about the FTP, not least, what is it? What does it mean? And I'm excited to ask you that. We'll get to that in a second, but I just want to drop in on that 27 degree heat piece. Malta sounds like a really nice opportunity to catch up, uh, you know, re- recapture the summer at the end of uh, at the end of October, well, beginning of October. How was that? Was that good? Yeah. It was, it, do you know what? It was excellent. And I have to say, as much as I was just slightly fatigued by a lot of traveling it was really the cherry on the cake because um it was a great time to just go and appreciate that last little bit of summer sun before coming back and i think we can all agree autumn has definitely set in i'm sat with my heater almost on my lap uh right now and i still don't think it's quite as warm as uh those sunnier climbs in malta so yeah that was that was definitely a good bonus Absolutely. Yeah. Radiator is on. The cardigan is on. Uh, autumn has truly hit. And uh, I'm the, the next event I'm going to is in sunny Islington. Um, so we're really going to have to talk about who gets to go to Malta next year. <laughs> <laughs> we can draw straws here. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Joe, uh, is there anything you want to tell people about what you're up to, what you're, you know, what you're working on um, and uh, that you'd like people to know before we get uh, go head first into the FDP? Uh, well, I'd love to be able to say we had some big scoop about who's uh, got the FTP contract, but as as we'll discuss, that's that's not the case. So, um, yeah, keep keep an eye out, I guess. Great. Well, let's kick off then. So, first non-story, I guess, of the week uh, is well, I mean, it's the absence of a story, isn't it? It's the fact that much as we were all anticipating it, and rumours have been flying around for the last few weeks that the the story of who will be the successful bidder for the large part of the FDP, the Federated uh, NHS Federated Data Platform, was due to, you know, was imminent. It was coming any time, and it didn't come. Um, so I'm yeah, really excited that you're still able to join us and talk about this, Joe. Um, I think probably let's start at the beginning, as, as Jessica said, and just say, what's, what is the FDP? Why, why are we talking yeah. about it? Why are people waiting and looking forward to hearing this news so much federated data platform is uh it's going to be a central platform that collects data from all the sort of disparate various it systems in the nhs and pulls them together into one place so that nhs organizations hospitals mental health trusts can 
pull data from that into their own systems and feed data into it. And the whole point of it is uh, to get rid of the silos that are uh, sort of commonplace in the NHS with data. So common story the NHS has been using is, you know, you go to a hospital, you've got to repeat everything you said to your doctor when you referred six months ago, probably uh, at the minute. Um, then you'll get referred to someone else and you'll have to repeat yourself again. The idea is just to cut out that sort of having to repeat yourself all the time and repeating your medical history. The NHS should be able to talk to each other. They've all got this data. It's just about connecting it together so that it makes it easier for the patient to flow through the system. I think that clears it up. And uh, hopefully, I mean, it's a national project, right? So it's going to connect your disparate parts from across. So, you know, if if you go see a GP in Durham, for example, you can go to a hospital in Cornwall and um, hopefully they'll they'll see everything and all of the data that came out. But it's, you know, absolutely noble intent completely makes sense as a concept what's what's the controversy about it's yeah it feels like it's been a couple of years now of discussing it and there's some you know leading lights from both sides of the argument who have put out some really persuasive arguments but what, what what's it all about why are people unhappy and um what's what's the problem i suppose there's two parts so first these are I guess the main aim of, of the FDP is for is the data is going to be used for direct care. So patients won't have the ability to opt out of their data being used for direct care. So that's, you know, their data from a GP being sent to their hospital so that they can be treated. That's, you know, that that's expected, I guess. The FDP will also, however, be used for secondary purposes. So research and planning. So we saw during COVID, um, data was was used for planning, um, you know, tracking who'd been vaccinated, what vaccination levels were. And it, it was hugely successful. And that's, I guess that's kind of what's driven this move towards the FDP is the work that was done during COVID. But there are some um, privacy concerns. Who's going to be able to see the data? Is it going to be properly anonymized? Who's going to have access to it? But I suppose the big controversy around FTP is the proximity of Palantir. I assume most people will know, but for anyone who doesn't, Palantir, a US-based company, they use, they typically work in the defense sector. So they provide their system to the CIA, uh, the Immigration Service in America, um, and their founder is, is Peter Thiel, who's a sort of big Trump-supporting guy. And he made some comments last year, I think, about Britain having Stockholm Syndrome with the NHS. And I think that kind of ruffled a few feathers and um, people are a bit unsure about this company being involved in the NHS. Um, so Palantir provided the COVID-19 data store, which is, I guess, the forerunner to what the FDP is, is going to be. So uh, some... Some concerns across the board. I mean, how I mean, how closely is Peter Thiel really involved? I know when when he made those comments, um, Palantir's UK managing director stepped in and very much disregarded them and stepped away from those those pieces. I mean, I I, I think you know we can have some confidence there from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, but I I would say it's it's probably likely that he's not going to be involved at all. I think that's of all of the concerns around the FTP and Palantir, I don't think Peter Thiel should be should be one of them. I would say though is about one of the things he said and I'm probably going to be a bit controversial here so he had said I think in the context of the Stockholm syndrome thing that essentially the NHS should be burnt to the ground and start start again obviously that's a very volatile comment to make however it's not too dissimilar from a lot of the conversations that we often have about the fact that 
in an ideal world, it would be really good to start from scratch and ultimately build a health system that is fit for purpose today, that has all the digital tech and the innovation that we know can make a difference built into that system, rather than trying to add it into a system that is struggling to stand up that technology and those systems. And it's not about technology, obviously, it's about the patients and all of that kind of thing. But I feel like it was, yes, a very direct way of articulating that. But the fact is, it's not that dissimilar from conversations we have from people who are on very much the opposite side of the table to him. It's just that he perhaps didn't choose his language quite as sensitively as as the rest of us would. So not not one to, you know, back back the uh, the seeming villain. But what I will say is I, I don't totally disagree with that statement. In a way, you yeah, the FDP is sort of an attempt to sort of plug those gaps and fill that piece and, and look at it like, you know, how would it be designed from the beginning, right? It's bringing everything together from its incredibly fragmented state now, right? You know, we're very defensive about the NHS and especially when it's, uh, you know, an American coming in and talking about it with obviously the issues they have with their health system. But I think the other issue that people have is is just the, the cost of it. It's, you know, nearly nearly half a billion pounds the FDP is going to cost. And some of the big some of the big sort of critics of it just argue that it shouldn't cost that much to do what they're asking it to do. Um, I know there's organisations and, and regions in the UK that are doing similar work on a smaller level, albeit, but for a, a lot less. Um, so I think when, when he makes comments like that, it's like people are a bit concerned about the <laughs> sort of profit-driven um, <laughs> motivations, yeah. maybe. It's interesting you talk about, the, the I guess, the profit, profit drivers behind it. Um, I listened to a podcast that, uh, well, it was a Guardian long read, actually, that um, Vishal Varani posted. So thank you to him for doing that. So yeah, it was this, it was a long read, audio version, talking about the FTP. And what was very good about it was it made it really human. So it basically talked about a person's experience of, um, she was talking about abortion care and how that pertained to the reality of the FTP and some of the concerns and that kind of thing. Now, we obviously know that you know mainstream media is not always super balanced. And I will caveat this conversation by saying it was definitely not a balanced account of the FTP. I did like the humanization of it and its attempt to make it real for people who don't exist within our healthcare bubble and uh, as we all do. Um, so anyone off the street could understand what's going on. But it did talk. So it, I should also say that it was written by, um, I think, the CEO of Foxglove, who are fierce opponents of. Uh, I think FDP in the broad, but Palantir in particular. And it, it's, it came across as a bit of a Palantir takedown, sort of. But also it talked a lot about this concept of profiteering. And I, I think, unfortunately, because it didn't bring in any other voices and maybe not necessarily bringing in Palantir, but perhaps other innovators or people from the NHS who have had mixed experiences with Palantir technology or understand the need for something like this, that would have really helped. But I I felt that it kind of missed the point a little bit that obviously, so one one of the things it said was that this money would be much better 
used by the NHS to invest themselves to solve the problem. But then in the next breath, went on to talk about some of the big gaps there are in the skills and expertise from the technical perspective in being able to actually do some of this stuff. So that kind of answered that question there. The, we, the NHS is not capable of doing this. The government is not capable of doing this. How many failed attempts have we had at achieving something like this? And again, that's not necessarily because they the NHS was trying to do it on their own. They had partners and it still didn't work. But you do have to then bring in an organisation who is more skilled and has the expertise to do it. Forget the name, forget which organisation it is. Those organisations have to make money somehow. And so I think that ultimately this is about patients and making a difference for patients. But I think it's very difficult to lean too far into this idea that it's all about profiteering because the other thing they talked about in that context was how, as you said, like additional use cases for the FTP, for third parties and discussed, you know, big tech companies like uh, Google or IBM training algorithms with this healthcare data. Again, like, yes, okay, or, you know, even pharma, you know, using the data for creating new medicines. Yes, those things all are going to create profit for those organizations. But how does healthcare get better if we're not embracing the technology or creating treatments? Because the NHS is not making medicines. They're not doing the research and development to find the, like, the cure for cancer. It's other organizations that are doing that, that have to be funded somehow. It's not the NHS that's creating algorithms that is being able that are able to process the data that we have so they have they have to come from somewhere so i felt like that was a clumsy argument towards a, not being comfortable with profiteering and and trying to conflate individuals sharing their data with ultimately it making big companies richer which yes it is going to do that, but there's so much good that can happen in between A and Z. And it didn't talk enough about that for me, I didn't think. And to be honest, I think the FDP as a concept is probably interesting. Well, not pro- it's more than interesting. It's needed. We know you outlined all of the challenges really, really clearly there. There has to be a solution. I think really the main controversy for FDP is coming from the big players in the running or the big player in the running because no one's really talking about any of the others and yes okay maybe they're not in with a chance of winning it but I think that also comes back to COVID again where we saw the VIP lane and contracts being awarded unfairly and all of those kinds of things and I think it's a hangover from that and the government that we have that's creating all of not all of the bad feeling a lot of the bad feeling and for me I think it it's a shame because it means that we're missing the point where we could be talking about the really good opportunity that a solution, FDP or not, could be providing. Um, and the fact is, we need something. So, who's going to create it? Who's going to offer up an alternative? Is my question. Mm, I think you're right. Some someone's going to have to do it, aren't they? So, <laughs> with the presumption then that, well, I mean, it's the long-held presumption now that Palantir is uh, is probably the most likely winner and we've uh, they've even won a, a contract to transfer their previous similar data service onto um, an FDP uh, style approach 
So, with, with, and you know, that in itself was a fairly large contract as well. Who else is in the running? What else is out there? And what are their realistic chances? Well, from, from what we've heard, it's all been very hush hush. So, we understand that everyone that's been involved in the procurement has had to sign NDAs. There's a lot of legal issues flying around. So, it's, it's been very hard to get concrete details. But I think we, we're pretty certain that the, the sort of main front runners are, are Palantir, as they've always been. And um, a, a consortium between IBM and a British company called Quantexa. Uh, interesting, I, I spoke to uh, Vish Maria, the CEO of, of Quantexa the other day, lovely guy. He's been doing a bit of a, a press press tour. Um, I think he was in the Times as well, did an interview. So whether that's an indication of how confident they are or, or whether it's just you know an opportunity to sort of get their name out there a bit more, it, it's hard to tell. But fr- from what we know, it's between Palantir and the IBM Quantexa um consortium interestingly it seems like there is potential for you know an unsuccessful bidder to work with the successful bidder eventually and, and to work together on a solution or, or various solutions um i think um vish from from context sort of hinted towards that that they, they want to keep working on the, in this space regardless of whether they get the contract um but just going back to what you were saying i, I think you made some good points jessica and, and what you were saying here about Palantir sort of having that contract already to transfer the um, existing COVID-19 data store. I think that's really the heart of the controversy. It's about, you know, it's this VIP lane, this sort of lobbying issue. And I think a lot of people take issue with the way that Palantir have gone about doing business with not just the NHS, but with the, the government in general. I think the FT reported a few weeks ago that Palantir had done a similar thing with um, Department of, of Leveling Up Housing and, and Communities. They'd provided a service for the Homes for Ukraine scheme for a pound or something, you know, something like that, and subsequently gone on to get a bigger contract. And, and that's how they've got involved with the NHS, you know, the COVID-19 data store. It was a one pound contract, which then was a one million pound contract. And I think in total now it's over 60 million pounds they've made without any you know, open tenders or anything like that. And I should probably clarify, there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing illegal about that they've not done anything wrong there but i think people especially when it comes to the nhs people are concerned about who we do business with um and i think that that's part of the controversy and as i said the cost we, we know that it's you know 480 million pound contract over over seven years a lot of people i've spoke to in the nhs or you know other suppliers who were a part of the process or who wanted to be a part of the procurement process is that they've all sort of said they could do it for far less and they're not sure what value, what extra value we're getting out of that, you know, half a billion pounds. Um, so I think you're right. You know, someone, this is something it needs doing. Someone has to do it. Um, but I think there are sort of legitimate questions there. Um, as things stand, it does. I mean, for the entire process, it seemed like Palantir were the front runner. NHSE have always denied that and said there is no front runner. You know, it's a fair process. And um, Vin Diwakar at uh, the HEC conference the other week was saying uh, is there were sort of 30 or 40 independent um, people judging the bids. and It was all separate. There was no one person making the decision. So I think they're aware that the process is under a bit of scrutiny. Um, but it does seem like Palantir are probably the likely winners um it would almost makes it would almost not make sense not to give it to them given that they have provided the software that's going to sort of transfer into the fdp so it, it remains to be seen as as we started we, we 
was supposed to have heard by September. Then it was mid-October. It's now the end of October and we haven't heard anything. The latest that we're hearing is that the, the contract's not actually been awarded yet. So even if that happens in the next couple of weeks, there's then a two-week cooling-off period where the unsuccessful bidders can can make a challenge. So we're looking at at least mid-November now before we, before we find out. Um, but I'm sure the, the debate will, will continue on long after it is announced as well. I think, let's be honest, it's not coming out before Christmas, is it? I mean, I'd say that's probably a, a, maybe a safe bet. It's, it's, it's hard to tell, but <laughs> I, I, I maybe wouldn't bet against that. <laughs> what really strikes me is at the core of a lot of this is it comes down to trust in, in lots of different ways. I think there's this element about tr- being able to have trust in data and how it's being used. One of the points that the, the article I was listening to made was that actually the awarding of the FTP and the creation of the FTP solution should be democratic with patients and the public, which I can agree with to a point, but also like trying to like the FTP is a complex thing. Data is a complex thing. And I do think that you have to be able to trust people to a point where they, where they're able to articulate how and where they want their data used. Um, but they also don't understand the technicalities and, and to un- also be able to truly make a decision based, an informed decision, I think is a re- it's really challenging. So I think there are certain things that perhaps you could bring in the public that would build that trust. I also think that there's something about trust in that decision-making process, as you've just said, where, you know, the NHS have gone to great lengths to reassure people that there's lots of people involved in this decision-making process. It's not a fait accompli. It's not one person making a decision but obviously, trust, trust has been broken by the evidence we've seen, as we talked about, of the FTP. The other side of it is, I think, trust in Palantir itself, which is that a lot of questions are raised of Palantir because it doesn't, on paper, notwithstanding the recent work it's done in the NHS, it wouldn't be an obvious choice because its heritage is insecurity. And I think that from my point of view, as a communications professional, a PR professional, I would have, on that side of the table, if I was there, I would really be advising them and have advised, would have advised them that to go, if you want to be able to be a trusted partner here, you need to really showcase why you're invested in healthcare and build a case for trust in healthcare rather than almost expecting your credentials in the security space to speak for themselves. Um, And unfortunately, I think it's done almost the opposite of that because people are questioning, well, if you're involved in, uh, you know, like nuclear weapons, then that seems to be a dichotomy between the sentiment we have for the NHS. So how do you join the dots on that? And so I think it's been a really missed opportunity for them as well to actually really get a strong story together and create a really compelling narrative about why they are the right people rather than just like well here's a few things we've done recently um because i can see how that comes across as opportunistic and potentially profiteering so i think and you know and ultimately trust around data is just such a sensitive space um and i think one of the things that links to this as well is the new legislation that is being talked about in terms of the categorization of what is personal data and health data. Um, 
And I think people obviously rightly have concerns about that and what it means in the context of um, the FDP and who has access to their data and that kind of thing. And again, it comes down to trust because people don't understand it. And also the people passing the legislation, do they fully understand it? Because it is technical. It's not It's not something that, you know, you could just pick up a briefing document, read, and then be able to make an informed decision about you. You have to be able to understand the nuance, I think. And I don't know, I I find it so interesting that so much of healthcare actually comes back to trust. Um, And I think it's one of the things that really gets overlooked. Um, I think we try and maybe approach it sometimes in, and this is not a criticism, what can be an almost superficial way because we don't get into the depths of how we can build that trust like in a really convincing way, I guess. I think people are a lot more aware of their data now. Um, I think we, we chatted mm. about this here a few weeks ago. You know, we've seen stories in the papers about people, uh, you know, using their shopping reward schemes and how that's there to sort of collect data. And I do think that the, the NHS has done the right thing in how they're sort of pushing this. I think sort of £2 million is going towards this big communication scheme they're doing. And a part of that work is going to be public engagement. Um, so there are going to be opportunities for the public to engage with the NHS about how their data is used and about what it means. But I think you're right. Going back to what you were saying about Palantir, they haven't really made a massive effort to demonstrate why they should be trusted uh, with healthcare. I think some of the work they've done previously is uh, one of the reasons why people are concerned. So that they work with immigration services in America and essentially their software being used to track people down. Um, when you talk about that kind of thing in, in, in the healthcare setting, it's a bit, it's a bit worrying. I think Palantir's big sort of uh, selling point is we're the best in class, you know, it may be expensive, but we're the best at what we do. Um, and I think that's kind of the argument that a lot of people in the NHS have, have pursued when talking about the FDP. From what we're hearing with pilot sites and uh, you know people who've used Foundry, which is their software, um, is that it's not always the case. So there's been a bit of confusion around. There was um, so you mentioned Foxglove earlier. They put a question to the, I think it was the Health and Care Select Committee um, about, I think there's 14 pilot sites that have been using Foundry to, to test use cases of, of the FTP using the existing Foundry software. And a number of those pilots have been paused for, for various reasons. And it's been really hard to find out the actual details of that. You know, where has paused? Why have they paused? The New York Times did a really good piece uh, last week or the week before where they spoke about uh FTP use case pilot in Milton Keynes, where they found that actually using the Foundry software was not beneficial to them because it wasn't compatible with their systems or something along those lines. And clinicians were having to manually enter data when they wouldn't actually have had to do that before. So it just goes to show that, uh, you know, one size fits all approach might not be the best approach um, for something like this, but that that's typically the case with with any big tech project. And I think that's why people are wary. So even Palantir then have come into into the NHS and struggled with interoperability, which <laughs> that isn't an <laughs> I don't oh, know what is. Yeah. So I guess to ask a, another question that many people will have is how optimistic can we be that the FDP, notwithstanding Palantir, but the FDP is the solution, knowing that so many similar solutions 
although not exactly the same, of course, have been attempted and canned? Mm, I think it's always this tricky one, technology in the NHS. You think about um, National Programme for IT, was it, and Care.Data and Mm. um, GP, DPR, things like that. There's been a lot of, um, there's been a bit of a track record with tech, big tech projects not going too well. And this is the biggest one in terms of monetary value. I think it's hard to say right now. I know that there is scepticism among people in the NHS. We had a conference a few weeks ago where a number of sort of leaders uh, said that they weren't quite convinced by it yet and were not planning on integrating with the FDP for the time being. But I think that's the, the benefit of it. It's a seven-year contract. We've got time to see what the use cases are and if it is being used effectively in, in certain places, others will follow. And And I think that's the... That's the benefit of, of something taking this long, but it's hard to say. Uh, there's not been a great track record mm. with big tech projects, so let's hope that this is the one. Mm. I'd love to get your view on the the letter from the sixteen medical directors, um, Joe. Like, I, it's probably unfair to talk about you know the people in the NHS who aren't convinced, and without sort of on the flip side looking at those who've uh, written that open letter and said that you know they're fully in support. So, I mean, what? what where where's that letter come from and, and who's you know who's behind it and how has it landed, I guess? Yeah, so this was from um medical directors at some of the trusts that have been involved with with the pilots. And I should probably stress that it's not they've not been pilots of the FDP because the FDP doesn't exist yet, but it's the foundry software and it's you know testing use cases. So um yeah, there was was it 16, 14 medical directors signed this open letter essentially saying that this this is what we need and this is the way forward. And then more recently, we published a story yesterday about how uh, three senior, well, three CEOs have now uh, put together an open letter, which they're hoping all ICB CEOs will sign, uh, calling for the same thing. Um, you know, we need to support this. We need to show the public that it's trustworthy and that this is going to make a difference. Um, from what we can tell, that one's not gone completely to plan. There's quite a few CEOs who haven't signed that yet. But what we've been told is that it's been half term this week. A lot of people are on holiday. Maybe the timing was just a bit off. In terms of going back to the medical director's letter, though, that they've said that's come from them. That wasn't, you know, an NHS England directive. It was their idea, you know, to publicly support this. We do know, I think, Digital Health reported that Vin Virakar did send out uh, an email or a letter encouraging people to, to do it, to sign it. That's not to say that it wasn't their idea to begin with but it's clear that there is a concerted effort to to get people on board with with what nhs is doing here two two things that i want to understand just a little bit better because i i don't know the answers and you're both of you are eminently more informed than me on this but obviously you mentioned it's a seven-year program that's a long time and we have a general election coming up at some point in the not so distant future First and foremost, what are the, what is the position or like the perspective of some of the other political parties on the FDP and the controversy surrounding Palantir? Uh That's a good question. I, it's not something I, I know too well, to be honest. What I would say, though, is I think a lot of people may be expecting the next government to be a Labour one. Um, if Palantir do get the FDP contract, I don't think we'll see too much different. Palantir was one of the big sponsors at Labour's conference earlier this year. West Street has spoken quite 
positively about them. So I, I really don't think it would make a difference who's in government. I think it's such a big project, such a big contract that it would be disastrous to sort of rip it up and, um, well, you know, wouldn't be able to do that anyway if the contract's in place. But um, yeah, I think Palantir being a sponsor of the Labour conference maybe maybe tells you about <laughs> about their influence over over British politics and over over the NHS. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question because I was going to ask how how do you think the general election might influence a project like this, where you know traditionally we see it, it, where there is a change in political party in government, there's they're, they're less inclined to perhaps continue with some of the initiatives of the previous government for many different reasons. But I think, you know, interesting you say that, that Palantir was obviously sponsoring the Labour Party conference. And yeah, I, I think, you know, potentially, as you say, it wouldn't have a, there wouldn't be any massive impact considering the emphasis we've seen from the Labour Party in Keir Starmer so far, talking about the importance of transformation in healthcare and and the the importance of technology as a driver for doing that. So I guess it it would make sense. I just wonder whether any incoming government would want to, perhaps as a a matter of principle, want to stamp uh, their own, um, or put their own stamp on it in some way, in order to prevent perhaps the previous government taking, taking credit for something that they started. But I guess... We all just have to wait and see. I'm always interested to see how politics and, yeah, well, obviously the general election because it's a big topic at the moment uh, may influence the outcome of some or the success of some of these initiatives, which could stand to have quite a substantial impact on the way that we engage with healthcare. So I, I just wanted to jump back to um, like because we talked about a lot of the kind of um, some of the stuff we saw about public trust opt outs from COVID. Um, and I mean, I fully remember, I think it was 2021 where we were all, uh, there was a very big campaign. I can't remember where it started to, to get us all to uh, opt out of our data being used for research and then our, our data being held centrally. You said that there's there's no opt out for the use of our data in 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 care. Um, there is it, there is in research, but, but, so looking forward, as we go into that kind of um, big point about the, the public engagement um, work that NHS is, is going to be doing after the contract, and it very much seems to be after the contract is awarded that that's going to happen now, um, are we doing enough to reassure people the use of their data? There's, you know, the, uh, Nicola Byrne had that that slightly critical article, I would say, of the of the the FDP piece, but, you know, public trust um, and the management of public trust in digital data, uh, health data, all of that. What, you know, is is the large scale engagement work going to be enough? Are we doing it at the right time? I think that's maybe the the question is is it the right time? Um, I think some of the criticisms have been it maybe seems a bit desperate pushing all this out now when we're supposedly very close to announcing the winner, but. Um, you know, better late than never. I think it's good that this work's happening. And I also think it's good that Nicola Byrne is saying these things. You know, she's the National Data Guardian. It would be concerning if she was um, just sort of happy going along, going along with everything and, and not questioning anything. I think it's reassuring to the public that, you know, she's doing her job in 
you know, protecting the best interests of people's data. Um, so the fact that she's asking those questions should be a reassurance. And I think it should be a reassurance that the work is now happening, even if maybe it should have started a bit earlier. Um, in terms of the public engagement, I, I never know how much people do engage with things like this. You know, people very, very quick to say that they're, you know, concerned about something or interested in it, but will they, you know, sit through a you know town hall or fill out surveys and things like that? Um, I think that might be the big challenge is getting enough people on board and actually engaging rather than, you know, sharing their thoughts on Twitter or, or something. But I guess even that can be a way of, of gauging how people are feeling. But I think it's, it's good that the work is now happening. But maybe maybe we will see a bit more time before the announcement and just to let some of this work bed in a little bit. Maybe that's why it's been delayed. Who knows? I think, though, speaking with my comms hat on, that you make a good point that how many people are really going to want to engage in surveys and engage at all as a comms professional. And he, I think maybe one of you pointed out that there was also a big, um, like communications, uh, contract that had, was being put around this. It's your responsibility to find a way that people, to get people to engage, I think. And that, requires sometimes especially on difficult subjects where you struggle to get people to engage to think outside the box um and ultimately it's something i talked about on the panel in malta actually around health inequity and like trust is the biggest social determinant of um your health but that we talk a lot about being patient-centered but actually there are so many groups of people who are mistrusting of the healthcare system but ultimately they're the ones who are going to benefit the most so it's their perspectives that matter the most so we have to find new ways to be able to engage with them on terms that they feel comfortable with to bring in their opinions otherwise we're at risk of excluding or basically creating a biased set of data ironically on which we're making decisions um so i think that there's a responsibility there to not just do what we always do and expect people to watch a very dry video. But the flip side of that is I was just sat here thinking when you were saying like, you know, people wanting to know how their data is being used, which I think we should know how our data is being used. And I can totally appreciate healthcare data is probably the most sensitive data that exists about us. Notwithstanding probably someone's Google history. So if you ask someone off the street, I'm asking myself this question, do I know how my bank is using my data? No, I'm trusting them that they're only sharing it with the right people, but I couldn't tell you now how my bank is using my data. How is my search history being used? Full disclosure, I, there's nothing I have to hide in my search history, but that's important information. You know, we've been to events before where, you know, Google have said that they're actually able to, in theory, um, diagnose someone based on their search history or know that they're having a flare-up, predict when someone's going to have a flare-up of a certain condition based on the things that they're searching for. And so, like, we do need to know, we do need to be informed, but are we holding healthcare to an unreasonably higher standard than we expect in other areas of our life? And arguably, you know, banking is a good example there where, like that's very sensitive information that in the wrong hands could be very problematic. And so do we actually need to have this kind of come to the table moment where 
we have a sensible conversation about what is an appropriate amount of understanding for people to have without overwhelming people. And I get, I think also, I guess the opportunity, a mechanism so that people can understand as much as they want to or need to. So I could probably go and read all of the terms and conditions and all of the different like consent forms that I filled out with my banking every time I log into the app or whatever it is, or I sign up for a credit card or open a new account. I could probably go and read all of that and it would get me some way to knowing. I do trust them because I have to, because I don't have time to read a 24 page document. If someone gave me a, a nice little dashboard or a cheat sheet with like, here's what you need to know, great. And maybe that's what we need to think about coming back to how we engage with people is just finding out how do we engage in the right way and share and like share information. I mean, like explain that information in the right way in accessible formats and places rather than expecting the same old thing that we know doesn't work to magically do something different. I don't know. No, I think it's a good point. We've all sort of, clicked i accept the terms and conditions of various things without without reading them um i do think maybe the, the nhs and, and health data does have maybe more of a responsibility or, or should be seen to be having more of a responsibility just because of the, the sensitivity like you said it's some of the most sensitive data out there and i think a lot of a lot of the times our data is being gathered and used is to sell stuff is to sell stuff to us and um i think that becomes a bit more problematic when it's our health data being used to, to sell stuff maybe but i think one, one thing that we probably should say to maybe reassure people is that whoever gets this contract isn't going to be the controller of the data um the nhs is still going to be the one that's controlling the data whoever gets the contract for the fdp is just building the system that's going to you know process the data but they won't actually have it but it's maybe not an unreasonable conversation to have is how long before that is um, an issue. I mean, health data in the UK is worth something like, well, it's worth billions of pounds. I can't remember the exact figure. It's like nine billion pounds or something. I thought, yeah, mm. nine billion. And I, I saw a recent, well, an article a little while ago discussing the idea of using health data to create like a sovereign, a sovereign wealth fund or something like that. And I think these conversations might become more more prominent in the, in the near future. And it's 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 a, an issue that we're going to have to we're going to have to engage with people with and we're going to have to determine what what the right course is because i don't think it's something that's going to go away so i ask this question on a on a fairly regular basis when we talk about health data and, and a, lot, a lot of these issues is yeah i think jess you you absolutely mentioned like you know is this going to be a, a big thing for the the election you know to, if could labor come down on the other side of it and the fact that as you say joe palantir is sponsoring their conference it's a sign they're probably not taking a big, uh, a, yeah, a big anti uh, movement um, against it. I guess my question is: Do enough people care for any of this to make a difference? <laughs> it's it's a it's it's a slightly negative way of putting it, but you know, just I've, I've just dug up the Nuffield Trust uh, data on the the national data opt out, and the current opt out rate is five point four percent. So 3.3 million people opting out of sharing their data. And that, that number jumps up quite significantly for the top numbers, women aged 30 to 50. Similar numbers for men aged 30 to 50, but the absolute max is women aged 30 to, uh, 30 to 39. But it's at 8% of them opting out, which is obviously not great. Probably 
again, it's it's that point about having enough data for this kind of solution to be useful. Um, you know, having for for particularly in research, particularly in population health management, having you know, having information on women's health at uh, you know at the, within that um, demographic would be you know particularly groundbreaking for you know digital solutions, healthcare for uh, women um, in that age group. So, is that is that enough? To, you know, is that level of opt out enough to be worrying? Should it? Should, you know, Nicola Byrne has raised concerns about. The lack of engagement, the the handling of the FDP could could push out the number of opt outs. But but when does it become so much opt out that the FDP it, it isn't useful anymore, or is just is that number never going to be high enough? Well, yeah, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? It's only really uh, obviously the NHS will care about the public response, and if there is a backlash, it's not going to do them any favours. But realistically, the only thing that will tank the project is if enough people opted out that it, it wasn't worth doing. And I think. What we saw during the pandemic was, despite all of the conversations about how data was being used and, and what it meant, is that it was used effectively and it, it did make a difference. And I, I don't know the figures, but I, I don't know if many people did sort of opt out of their data being shared for, for planning and, and things like that. Interestingly, Foxglove wrote to Steve Bryan, chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee recently. Lord Markham recently pledged to reform the national data opt out. This is something that, that Fox Glover are sort of pushing. So they're a legal advocacy group, who, as you said, very anti-FTP or you know, anti-Palantir. And they mentioned the fact that previously with things such as care.data, general planning for data and research, GPDPR, um, as you say, the national opt-out levels stay consistently about 5% of English population. Um, any more than that, they say, would cause real, real issues. So... That is something that's being looked at is is how do we how do you get people to opt out if they really want to because it's it's like with organ donation right it used to be you opt in to do that and not many people were doing it once you switch it to well you have to opt out if you don't want it I think far fewer people are likely to to do that because realistically is it worth going through the effort of doing and I, I yeah I don't know it's, it's it's interesting but clearly it's it's something that's of concern if it, if it's being looked at for for reform. It just come. It becomes really self perpetuating, though, doesn't it? Because if too many people opt out, it becomes a biased data set by omission. People opt out because they don't trust the data, but the data becomes even less trustworthy the more people that opt out. So it's it's really hard. How do you how do you fix it? It, it, it comes down to trust. It comes down to trust and. That unfortunately takes time as well, and I think you know, as you said, this public engagement, or the, that's the point of public engagement, I guess, um, to make people help people to feel reassured, and also help them to feel like they are being at least in small part active decision makers in the future of how data is being used, so they feel that ownership. Um, it's very hard to, I guess, feel trust and ownership over a decision that you've not been a part of um but again we don't want to be in a position where we're perpetuating health inequity because the people who trust the how their data is being used the least are opting out but are also potentially the people who need their data to be included and therefore used to support treatment as you said whether it's women or you know ethnic minority populations 
whoever that might be, we we need to make sure that the data we have is representative, as you said. Otherwise, then it becomes pointless. But also, what's the at what point is what is that point um, of opt out that it becomes futile? Some really interesting questions there for the NHS to consider, not least in their £2 million worth of large-scale engagement. I, say, I feel like we really have not left many stones unturned there. I'd agree on that one. I'd agree on that one. And thanks, Joe, for, for helping us unturn those stones and, and giving us more of an insight than uh, we, well, I certainly had at the uh, beginning of this conversation. So really appreciate you coming on and uh, getting into the weeds of it with us. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm happy to come back on when we eventually do find out who's got it. Get that January date in your diaries, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jessica. That was the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Uh, you can find all, well, you can't find anything about the FDP in this week's uh, edition because the story didn't come, but hopefully this newsletter will keep you going. But for the best uh, sto- other stories of the week in Health Tech, head over to healthtechpigeon.com for news, podcasts, Podcasts, jobs and events that you should be paying attention to. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.